Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. We're excited to have half of the leadership team of ArtBlocks with us today. ArtBlocks is a platform focused on genuinely programmable, on-demand generative content that is stored immutably on the Ethereum blockchain. Joining us are Eric Calderon, CEO of ArtBlocks, Chief Creative Officer Jeff Davis, and Chief Technology Officer Jake Rockland. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Excited to be here. This is part two of our interview with ArtBlocks. It's kind of exactly my next question. Are there analogs to this like throughout history, whether technology or not? You kind of like, like you talked about skateboarding and, you know, snowboarding and then now it's an Olympic sport, you know, uh, uh, are there, are there other examples throughout history that like it started off as like, Oh, that's kind of interesting, but we're not really sure. And then kind of starts gaining traction. It's like, Oh, we could, there's a lot of opportunity here. I think there's a lot of, you know, points in, you know, I, I guess I think of like different points in art history where uh, different tools or media are introduced and there's this kind of initial sort of like reaction, like, well, of course that's not art, you know, photography, uh, the printing press, <laughs> you know, things that we just take for granted, you know, as fine art medium now. And so um, the computer, I think, has that sort of, has had that sort of stigma um, in the art world. Like, well, no, you made this with a computer. It's not art. And so that's kind of, I feel like a barrier that we're helping push through and sort of normalize the fact that, yes, this is just as much of a valid um, medium for, for art creation as, as any other tool. And so I think there's just, there's always this natural, like, you know, conflict between uh, what the, what, what the establishment is used to seeing and calling art and, and artists pushing forward something new that they're excited about. And it takes a little while for those things to kind of like <laughs> settle in. So, um, so I think that's kind of where we are sort of like strategically is like, you know, making our case for, for yeah. why, um, why this is valid. And it'll get there. Yeah. I mean, I already yeah. feel like we're, we're making great strides <laughs> uh, in that regard anyway. So. All right. I, I think like one aspect of, why we're in that kind of inflection point now, like to, to Jeff, something Jeff said earlier uh, that this medium is very like of the time. You know, I think the number of people who are just like very comfortable interacting in purely digital mediums, like having fully, you know, entire social relationships that are with people online that they met um, as well as like the number of people who just like are comfortable writing code. Like there's hundreds of thousands of software engineers in the world now, whereas like, it was definitely not the case in 1950s, 1960s. Um, I think that creates the opportunity for people to just like have this art form more deeply resonate with them than, than maybe it did when computers were more of just like a new scary thing, uh, broadly speaking, in society. 
That makes me think, Nick, uh, in, in one of our classes several years ago, we had, I think it was the first student that was accepted to the conservatory whose primary instrument was computer, uh, which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I remember the uh, composition student. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Eric, I had asked you a question earlier and you had mentioned that there are about three or four or five businesses similar to art blocks in that, uh, in that space. So do you think that that genre will continue to grow more organically or do you think it's going to reach a tipping point and then grow pretty quickly? I think that's a great question. I, I think that the genre will continue to grow organically within the art world. In fact, I think, you know, there's, frenzies in the nft space and i think that there's a chance that it could actually stabilize a little bit and we might start finding out who the people that are participating in this because they love art and not necessarily because they're looking to kind of you know flip uh a bunch of stuff um so i think there's going to be a yes a very organic uh growth and or stabilization of the of the medium in the nft space where uh you know, where my mind wanders and I'm just, you know, really lucky to work with a bunch of people that share a similar vision is that, you know, um, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, or I don't know if I mentioned this earlier here, but that, you know, if the, the moment that it costs the same amount of money to manufacture a million of a different uh, individual products that are all unique as it costs to manufacture a million of the exact same product. There's absolutely no reason why we as humans should walk around with the all with the identical thing, unless that's like part of the design intent. Mm. And so I, I believe that generative content, generative creation, generative manufacturing, and generative just um, experiences are going to actually become a very significant part of uh, our everyday life. And mm. you know whether it's we're designing a generative coffee table from a designer that we think is just such an incredible designer that we're willing to click a button and purchase whatever the mentor comes out, you know, creates. Or maybe one day we're, you know, designing the interior of a car in, in a way. You know, the, 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 the point is that there's no reason for us to, as humans, unless it's intentional, settle to have everything that uh, be exactly the same as everybody else's. And one, one, of the, one example, again, with a low friction is art. Um, you know, everybody has their own PFPs, but people don't want to share a PFP. They want their own. That's what identifies them. And, you know, a little bit to Jake's point, you know, COVID put us all even more behind a computer than we were before. Uh, being represented on a digital level is very different than it was um, uh, a few years ago. And there's a, a, a really big opportunity for gener- the concept of generative creation to really explode well outside of just, you know, what we're doing at our blocks on, at the art level. And we're planning for that. And we're, we're, we're trying to stay ahead of that and, and make a seamless process for people to create stuff in a generative way. This next question, I think we've covered a little bit, but um, I'll ask it and see if there's any uh, other thoughts on it. Uh, I think NFTs are, or my understanding of NFTs is they're mostly a tool for proof of ownership, as, as we've talked about. Talked about. Uh, but their utility can go beyond that. Uh, can you talk about some of the other functions uh, that, that it might have? I think... The other one that immediately comes to mind is is uh, more like that proof of membership in a club type mm-hmm. of thing, and so like you know that might be uh, that you're you know proving that you're part of a uh, you know like you're using an NFT to tokenize and represent the membership of uh, you know a group that co-invests together or a social club or 
you know, a, a uh, community of people that have other assets that are like part of that digital ecosystem um, or that it's like, you know, your membership in a gaming experience where you're doing like the, the NFT both unlocks your ability to participate in playing the game in a unique fashion and, and also um, actually like is an asset in that game. Um, those, those are the things that immediately come to mind. I don't know. I think another one that's pretty, you know, being used right now is kind of a concept of like ticketing. Um, someone mentioned this, like NFT can very much serve as a, as a ticket. So you, you hold the thing and when you attend the event or, or, uh, you know, uh, to unlock the experience, you trade in, you trade your NFT back into the, the system to like open, open that up. So I think that's another use case that's pretty, you know, pretty common right now. If you and if you take that a little bit further and you do a generative ticket, you know, just like that ticket stub that we have in our in our collage of ticket stubs, it's nice if they're all different too, instead yeah. of all being the same. So there's a there's a generative opportunity there where it doesn't have to be some like mind blowing generative art project, but it can be something meaningful. It can be something just as simple as the colors that the band uses, or uh, you know, some little character representation that is meaningful and everybody's is a little bit different and. Um, and provides just like a souvenir for having the experience. How do artists price their work or is it more of an auction? So that's a good question. Um, was, uh, we, we have, we have two models, I guess at Artblock. So there's a fixed price release. And so the artist would set the specific amount of ETH uh, that each output um, of the project would be sold for. Um, and then we also um, employ uh, what's called a Dutch auction or a decreasing price auction. So um, in that model, that, that's something you would generally set up if you think there's high demand um, for a project and there's more people that are interested in acquiring it than there are outputs available. Um, and so you're, you're basically creating a mechanism to let the market sort of de determine what the fair market price is you know, of that NFT. And so... Um, you generally start a Dutch auction at a price high enough that you do not think anyone will actually come buy the thing at that price. And then you let it degrade until it reaches a resting price. Um, and then somewhere between those bounds, you know, you, you hope you got the numbers right and things sell out uh, between there. And then that sort of is setting the, the, the fair market price, you know, for the artwork. I don't know if that's helpful. I, maybe a little vague, but um, th those are the main mechanisms we use um, at our box. Yeah. When you okay. said something that I hadn't that I hadn't thought of, of course, you set a number of um, a number of iterations or versions that that a that a piece of code would create, right? Yeah. So all of our projects have, uh, you know, the artists uh, and, you know, in conversation with, with art blocks, but the artist sets kind of the upper bound and that's hard coded okay. into the project. And so in the same way that, you know, for printmaking, um, you have an edition size of a print um, that gets capped and there's only 20 of them in existence. Um, we do the same thing, you know, on art blocks. Um, our projects often run more in the nature of a hundred or even up to a hundreds or thousand, you know, up to a thousand or, you know, even a couple thousand in some cases, um, overall number of outputs. And generally it's the, uh, that's determined by the nature of the, the algorithm, um, that's creating the artwork. Um, right. how much variability does this project support? 
Um, and sometimes it's the algorithmic space is very vast and there's a lot of variety and everything looks unique. And so it can support a larger number of outputs and, um, some projects are tighter or purposely smaller algorithmic space. I, I tend to work in much smaller algorithmic spaces. And so maybe only hundred is appropriate. Um, but the interesting thing I made the comparison to printmaking is that, so you, you are sort of capping the project size, the artist is, and that nothing else will, you know, no more NFTs will be generated after that point. Um, but for generative art, um, every single one of those is unique within that addition. If you, we call them algorithmic additions. So it's a little different okay. um, than like a hundred copies of the same prints, which would be a right. traditional printmaking technique versus a yeah. hundred unique artworks within a series of a hundred. So is the value, um, of now I'm, now I'm afraid to use any words cause I'm, I'm I think I've thoroughly confused myself. Um, is the value of any token directly tied to the value of the crypto? So in your case, the, the Ethereum, Yes. I, I think Eric mentioned that, like there is sort of an ethos, you know, in the space where we, you know, we tend to value things in Ethereum. And so that's right. how we price, price the artwork on our blocks and that's how artists get paid. And, um, but yes, surely there's an, an impact on the U S dollar valuation of, sure. of Ethereum that, you know, definitely plays into the, into the economics. And so, um, I think one thing that's interesting that I, I notice is that when the price of Ethereum is more stable, um, people tend to be more willing to spend it, say, on NFTs. And when there is significant price fluctuation, if it's rapidly increasing or rapidly decreasing, when there's volatility, um, mm. people tend to like sit tight a little bit more <laughs> on it. NFTs, at least for me, are fascinating just because of their duration. So while copyrights are in force for a creator's lifetime plus 70 years, NFTs can pay royalties in perpetuity, correct? So assuming that there's a good income stream, would an artist create an LLC or some other entity that could exist generationally? Because who gets that money? Forever is a long time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something that, to be honest, like I don't know that this is – this is very early and I think there's definitely some structural things that need to be ironed out, but yes, you're, you're absolutely correct. That money, that Ethereum ongoing royalties is paid to a digital wallet in perpetuity. So it's not necessarily paid. I mean, it's, it's paid to the person who has control over that wallet. So to that point, um, yes, in terms of like estate planning or legacy, right. Um, we need to start thinking through like what that looks like. Um, how does, how does access uh, to that digital wallet, you know, change over time, over generations or, you know, mechanisms for, for rerouting, you know, those, those royalties to a different wallet, you know? So, uh, you know, my sense is that I don't know that any of this stuff actually exists yet. And so these are things that are like <laughs> being determined in, in real time. Wow. This is a, a really good example of when, NFTs for non-digital goods start entering the blockchain, right? So if your life is controlled, not controlled, that's scary. But if your life is is represented uh, on the blockchain, a a very simple and clean smart contract could be created that basically is triggered upon your death. 
And so, you know, we're just not there yet. Like when, you know, right. the, the city of the, the, the county that I live in is not going to send an Ethereum transaction to say, hey, Eric has passed away and therefore triggering uh, stuff to happen. And so you're still kind of relying on humans a lot. But I personally am entering into a uh, into the conversation with attorneys and accountants in creating a yeah. uh, LLC and then also a trust for my children. And that trust will include, for example, a bunch of my NFT art, but then also instructions to what that legacy looks like in, in terms of like those ongoing royalties. There's artists that uh, utilize all the royalties for supporting their work or for supporting charity or for supporting their other uh, installations. And, you know, artists uh, are starting to kind of realize that these things could be in perpetuity. And maybe, you know, right now it's a little absurd because that royalty could be hundreds or thousands of dollars a month, but uh, a week. But even if it's just like, $100 a week or $100 a month, that yeah. can be a significant source of like ongoing income yeah. for someone and not something to be taken for granted. Makes me think there must be, you know, accounting firms and law firms out there. They're like, we need specialists in blockchain and all this oh, other I'm stuff, sure. but oh, they yeah. don't really actually know what that means, right? And lawyers. I mean, and, literally, yeah. you know, a lawyer will never be replaced by a smart contract in some ways, but in other ways, they will, right? Like yeah. the, the, the human heart is what causes a lot of conflict in terms of litigation and if something is sitting there in black and white in smart contract code and you can't do anything that it, about it you <laughs> just can't do anything about it it is what it is if your loan expires i, I lose my crypto punk period like there's just nothing i can do about it and i enter into that understanding that um it just i think things do become a little bit cleaner and no it doesn't apply to everything but it can apply to a lot of stuff uh, and and uh, I think it's going to be really fun to see how that progresses. And it's interesting. One of the things that I always harp on in courses is time. In a negotiation, people rarely use time. But if it's used effectively, we'll give you a day to sign the contract. This is a limited time. It's scarcity. This is just the other extreme. You've never had to worry about perpetuity. So I imagine there's going to be a lot of money spent looking into that. Figuring that out. Yeah, there's going to be a lot. Of, I mean, we just need people to understand that this is a file type and not some speculative, maddening thing. And and people will come around and realize the potential. We just have to get through these spider webs that are kind of in the way right now. Um, yeah, and there are, uh, you know, I, I give this as an example. I got to speak at two Ivy League universities back to back a couple of weeks ago, and I asked for feedback, and both of them gave me the same feedback, which was, "You're the only one that came in here and didn't talk as if everything that was happening was normal." or expected or deserved, you know, like everything that I say is always with a, this isn't normal or, you know, this, what we're experiencing right now is the growing pains or the, the beginning. And this is just a weird cycle. Everybody else that came in to talk about their projects was like, Oh yeah, this is the future. And I mean, I do, I think that, I think we can all agree, at least, you know, us three on this call that this technology isn't going anywhere. We're not going to wake up one day and be like, yeah, that was, that was a fun, but let's just go back to like keeping everything on centralized databases and uh, making, you know, the banks our central point of, of, of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're a long ways out before it becomes permeated into our society. We need to get to a point where we're not having to explain what a blockchain is, what an NFT is, where we just kind of assume that a digital asset is, is an NFT or is yeah. controlled by a verifiable um, blockchain but when we get to that point and all this madness kind of subsides it's it's just going to be a very straightforward and simple technological technological innovation that will change the way that we uh, op- operate and uh, interact with the digital world and I, I just don't see any other path yeah. for humans than that 
Do you think it's going to give you a boost that countries now are looking into this blockchain, like you know China? I heard the U.S. is doing this, like a digital currency, a, a, a yeah. digital like government. Yeah, I think that that's that's a whole other two-hour conversation. That's yeah. like no, scary. I was just wondering if. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't know. I think that governments entering this, you know, can also lead to a government controlling or trying to control stuff. So that's always a little bit scary. But yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is that like a big part of uh, you know the Web three space is the concept of decentralization, and yeah. the that's what really makes all this work. And so if you think about a government wanting to come in and control a system, you know, that everybody uses, then it, crypto loses a lot of, <laughs> of its, you know, utility uh, if it's centralized, you know, so I think that's part of it, but I think there can be a role um, if we as a society or a government like views this as a technological advancement and just simply provides um, the right, you know, regulations or support or things of that nature that will just allow it to grow um, as a technology in the same way that I would say, you know, largely, you know, we've done with the internet, you know, at large. Um, I think that's the right way to go. Just say, this is important. This is really, really important technology. And so let us either get out of the way and just make sure things are safe or, you know, whatever it is um, and, uh, and let it, let it be built of its own volition, I think, versus, being a centralized, you know, system. I, I think even just like the fact that governments themselves at large are talking about crypto in a more serious way uh, adds legitimacy to crypto as something that is interesting. Whereas, you know, maybe five years ago, people were like, ah, what is this crypto thing? It's just a scam. When, you know, governments are talking about releasing their own cryptocurrencies, I think it has the potential to peak interest in people to then say like, Oh wait, maybe there is something interesting going on here uh, and pay more attention to like the, you know, peer to peer decentralized aspect of things and why that's interesting because they're willing to kind of poke a little bit further. Um, yeah. It's one aspect. Down. If you're interested in one, these are other facets. It's not one dimensional. Yeah. Yeah. All that sort of makes me think too, back to the, I, I, I'm going to get the name wrong again, Eric, you were talking the, the, Crypto punks is that is that what you're saying? Like, there's something very punk rock anti-establishment about sort of the whole, um, you know, blockchain crypto sort of stuff that's going on. And I we just had a, a speaker come uh, to our our, uh, our school, and he was saying, um, I think, in, and I, I might get this wrong, but uh, that's sort of my disclaimer here. In 2021, uh, African Americans invested more in crypto than they did in stocks, and um, wow. Or that might not. I'm sorry. I probably said that wrong. It's probably it's not necessarily a dollar amount, but percentage of the population of African Americans that own crypto is higher than percentage of African Americans that own, you know, have stock portfolios or whatever. And I think there's something there too, right? It's it's kind of like here's this institution that you know we've been that that have that has you know left populations behind for whatever reasons, um, but now here's this new opportunity that we feel like is accessible and you know uh yeah i don't know it was it was an interesting uh statistic that he had talked about yeah, i think that's a that sentiment of feeling uh jaded about the traditional finance system and seeing crypto broadly speaking is like 
uh, an alternative uh, yeah. that's more, you know, more transparent, um, more decentralized is right. definitely, I think, a commonly shared sentiment in, in the space. And I, I'd say there's parallels on the art side, you know, as well. And sure. so uh, generally the art world is thought of as sort of a, you know, uh, there's a lot of gatekeeping um, and people that, you know, get to make, you know, a handful of people get to make the decisions about what's, what's, you know, art and what's not. Um, and NFTs have really unlocked that, uh, for the artist community. It's, it's often, you know, a phrase that's used a lot is that this is the creator economy. And so they're getting the gatekeepers and the middlemen generally out of the way and just giving the creators tools, uh, to express themselves and kind of make their own way, um, in this space than being, you know, needing intermediaries to like help them, you know, uh, support their craft. The number of artists that have been, you know, wildly successful in the space and are not necessarily represented by, you know, an agent or a gallery necessarily, um, I think is really interesting testament to that. Like how successful X copy has become despite just being this anonymous person that's been making this like genre of, of uh, grungy glitch art over the past, you know, half a decade or decade uh, that it's been like, that's, that's interesting in and of itself. And so how much of all of this is like economics as we know, economics so basic supply and demand and how much of it is technology playing around with technology. So our tokens grounded in basic supply and demand principles as we talk about it in economic terms, or is it more grounded in here's a technology. Let's kind of see what happens with it and see what the possibilities are searching for problems to solve. Yeah. I think it's very much both. Um, and so it, I wouldn't say it's more so one or the other. And that's what's so, uh, at least for me personally, like fascinating and exciting about crypto as a space, generally speaking, is that it is this like uh, unique intersection of, of technology and uh, economics fundamentals that you don't necessarily see in uh, kind of like other areas of technology, broadly speaking, right? Yeah. Like the people working uh, on, you know, payment applications aren't necessarily thinking about like um, macroeconomics. Um, whereas like the people who are like proto protocol developers at the Ethereum foundation, like definitely are thinking about uh, economics and incentives and mechanisms. And so, um, you know, you see that at the protocol level, you see that at uh, you know, the, the platform level at the individual artist level, like the, that aspect of things um, is, is very real. I mean, economics is like percolated throughout our, all of our lives in general, um, but that being so directly like integrated with the technology, I think is an exciting aspect of the space. As a follow-up related to the practicality of documenting blockchain transactions, late last year I received a two-page document from our accountant that warned against keeping loose records of blockchain transactions because of the, the technology is still new. They stated that it's not uncommon for NFTs to have thousands of transactions. And I, I have a tough time or a tough enough time tracking my receipts. So how would a creator keep track of transactions without it becoming a full-time job? I assume this is all naturally recorded. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, I was going to say, the, the blockchain does the recording work for you. Yeah. And it's all public to anyone to, you know, it's a public record of everything that's happened. Um, the harder part is reconciling all the transactions from an accounting standpoint. Um, and so, 
yeah, that it's a lot of work. And so, and that's, yeah. we were talking about the, this need for, you know, crypto accountants and crypto lawyers. And, um, so the, you know, there are people, and there's also, uh, technology developing that you can say, uh, connect your wallet to a service, um, mm-hmm. that will analyze all of your transactions and then provide some assistance and helping you sort of reconcile, um, each of those transactions, but, uh, you don't need to keep receipts. Uh, the blockchain keeps your receipts. You just need to help make sense of what each of those transactions are. Just, just don't lose your password. Well, don't lo- don't lose your don't lose your keys. Yeah, it's not a keys, not a password. Whatever you say. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of so like on one hand, you know, it's kind of funny with that what he said there. It's kind of funny because I I can understand this in con- in concept, but then in other ways, I think I'm like a five year old listening to three physicists t- teach me about <laughs> string theory, right? I mean, it's, so I I see both sides of this. Yeah, the uh, the in practice part of reconciling all those transactions can definitely be uh, uh, stress inducing for for people who've been you know very active in the space because. Uh, you definitely can have a situation where you have thousands of transactions that you're you're trying to make sense of. But yeah. you know, if you're just someone who wants to buy a, a, a couple pieces of art and, and you know hold on to them because they resonate them. with you, uh, I definitely wouldn't let the tax piece be like a, a barrier to entry because that's not going to be the case if you're just buying a couple things. It's it's only the case if you're really deeply going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Or if you sell one thing, if you create something. And then it gets sold multiple times because now you have all those royalties, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, this, all of those transactions yeah. are points of income for, say, an artist. So, um, yeah. yeah, but again, they're, they're tracked and you know exactly when you received it and what the U.S. dollar value amount is for the Ethereum transaction that, that occurred. And so it's a matter of just sort of aggregating all of those transactions and saying this is – this is income I earned in this, you know, in this tax year. Yeah. So it's not a big deal. Well, no, it's a really big deal. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got the, this letter of panic from a bunch of accountants, and accountants are typically well, non-panic. I, I think what they're saying is just tell your accountant to go look it up on the blockchain. Yeah, exactly. Out, right. right? No. <laughs> no, they'll, yeah, do that for, they'll do that for free. We are, we are literally one week away from uh, April 15th right. while we record this, so yeah. we're all very knee-deep in it right now. <laughs> yeah. the, yeah. the trickier part, really, is like it's not the income side that you're describing. It's the capital gain side. So every well, time you sell something. Oh, man. Um, it's a capital gains event. And so that's what I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. That's the trickier part. Until, until legislation catches up and then they'll have some other sort of tax for it, crypto income or whatever. Right. Yeah. That would mean. certainly make a lot of people happy. <laughs> the common sentiment in the space is, is not like, I'm not, uh, I don't have a problem with paying my taxes. I just wish it was simpler to understand what I owed. Of course. The, the capital gains piece of yeah. thing adds a, a layer of complexity for I'm folks. Sure. Can I can only stressful. imagine what you all are going to be going through. Anyway. All right. Cortisol levels. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry to, yeah. Sorry to like. It was going uh, well until now. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, through the magic of editing, it will be an amazing ending. Yeah. Uh, so we've reached the end of the podcast, uh, where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. Um, and if each of you want to contribute or, you know, if you don't have anything to say, that's perfectly fine too. But, um, what, uh, what, what advice would you give to an entrepreneur wanting to enter this space? 
uh, maybe from from either side, right? From the from from like a, a minting or someone who wanted to start something like an art blocks, and maybe from uh, from the artist side as well. Ooh, I I would say take your time. It's not going anywhere, and assume that if anything feels or seems too good to be true, it is. There's a lot of scams that are preying on people's desire to participate quickly. Um, get to know who the right people are. Get to know who the, the voice leaders are and not the ones that are compelling you to buy stuff because they just bought a bunch of it and are going to sell it to you, but because they seem like they're truly passionate in this space. Uh, I think if you enter the space and you do not take any financial action for six months, you will probably be in a better place than uh, the other way around. And I'd, I'd say on the artist side, um, artists uh, interested in entering the space, I think um, there's a couple of things. I think start small. Um, don't don't think that you're just going to tokenize your first NFT and it's going to sell for tons of money. Um, it's better to um, get your work out there at, at a lower cost point and, and build a, an audience and community. And that's the second part of what I would say is that this is not... Um, it's not necessarily if you just put stuff out there, uh, people will find it. So there's also uh, an audience building and community element. So I think it's really important as an artist to come in and not just immediately, you know, put your artwork out there. You should be listening. Eric was kind of touching on this too. You should be listening. You should be talking to people, um, getting to know the community of people that will ultimately be your collectors. Um, and so you have to do that kind of work. It's not, it's not like this automatic windfall um, situation. You have to put in the work to build your audience and start small and start getting the word out or your work out into the ecosystem. Um, and, and then hopefully if you keep at it, it will, it will grow from there. Yeah. I think this is something, uh, Eric and Jeff both touched on, but, um, I think to reiterate, like, you know, engaging and, and asking questions is something I'd really strongly encourage. I think something that's really exciting about this space, uh, the NFT space, is that there are like a lot of communities and sub-communities that people are really, uh, you know, excited to like be able to talk to other people that are excited about a specific artist or a specific genre or specific technologies uh, and finding that sub-community that's like, you know, the right fit for you, whether that's like a photography sub community, cause you're a photographer or, you know, uh, the art blocks community, cause you're a generative artist, uh, and just unique, like a genuinely engaging and asking questions. Um, I think there's like a lot to, to gain from that, both just from learning and, and from, um, you know, building, uh, your own kind of following as an artist and, and, um, being able to, to form those kind of like real relationships with existing communities. Um, And what can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience? I think blockchain does enable that just kind of inherently by, you know, just the pure democratization and also just the pure supply of it. Um, But teaching, educating, informing, inspiring, um, you know, and, you know, what we're doing is trying to evolve what art means, not all of art, but the specific kind of little tributary that we are participating in, we're trying to evolve that and a long way evolve 
generative art, and then along that just evolved digital art. You have digital art a place in history. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was going to say it similar that, you know, I think the, the work we're doing at Artblocks and just probably what's happening more generally across NFTs is we're, we're engaging with a digitally native audience that um, has not been interested in art before. And so I think um, that's really exciting um, that there's this kind of a, a new generation of art lovers being, you know, sort of wooed into, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, digital, uh, you know, first art that maybe wouldn't have ever thought twice about um, thinking of themselves as being interested in art. Yeah, I'll, I'll double click on uh, Eric's point to teaching. I, I think, you know, the, the fact that uh, I had been like working in software for, years and uh also you know had a decent exposure to like art history but never really was exposed deeply to generative art until like i found art blocks is uh is interesting and i think that there's probably a lot of other people who like uh you know have a lot of creativity in their souls and uh you know like to write code that um are now just learning about this art form and and um are going to create really interesting things in the future and so expanding you know like that inspiration in a new generation of kids that are going to be, you know, like really awesome artists uh, when they grow up to me is really exciting and uh, something I want to see us push forward. Well, and it's worth mentioning uh, arts, art blocks has a a corporate giving strategy that supports a lot of these. Do you want to just briefly mention uh, some of the things you're doing in that, in that area? Okay. Yeah, let me talk about that a little bit because there's two actually sides to our corporate giving strategy that's pretty okay. pretty exciting. Number one, uh, based on just kind of our acknowledgement of the insanity that this space is, we um, work with artists to help them you know, divert a percentage of their drop to charity. And um, what that has led to was uh, Artblocks, I think, facilitated over $50 million in charitable donations last year alone. Wow. Um, and then on our side, on the corporate side, which it literally just makes our corporate giving just feel so small, but there's some fun facts here, right? So then Artblocks separately corporate wise, um, also facilitated and actually just directly donated over a million dollars last year to various different charitable organizations. One, one notable fact is that that equaled our overhead for the year. So it's, you know, it just seems so little compared to the 50 million, but it's actually pretty significant. I think for a startup and something we're, we're incredibly proud of. Furthermore, we decentralize the process a little bit of charitable giving. So not only are we using a beautiful platform called endowment, E-N-D-A-O-M-E-N-T dot org, that allows you to create a donor advised fund and then also operate everything in a very transparent manner using cryptocurrency. But we also reached out to our community and had people designate, um, I think it was 30 different charities that they wanted us to uh, donate. Actually, I think it was more than that. I can't remember how many it was from the community. Uh, so we 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 had our team select charities, the community select charities, and then you know um, we had a couple of really fun art related opportunities to where our box was able to have a a beautiful year last year in charitable giving, supporting all sorts of um, of organizations, and we are uh, on track to doing the same thing this year, and we're super excited about it. That's, That's awesome. great, guys. Um, and so our last question is what's the best, uh, entrepreneurial or, or artistic advice you've ever received? 
you guys go first. What's the time to think about? It. I'll be last to order. <laughs> that, that's a good question. I don't. Um, I, I sort of just. Uh, I don't know, sort of stumbled into being an entrepreneur, I guess, um, just by just working on side projects. So it wasn't, I never really thought of myself as like, this is something I was seeking out to do and looking for advice, you know what I mean? On like what, how to, how to position myself either as an artist or as a, as an entrepreneur. Uh, some of the things I, 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 in the presentations I gave, uh, at the conference at Mm -hmm. uh, Kent state, I kind of recapped a few things in terms of just my, learnings, I guess, in terms of the trajectory of my career, um, the, it, we just were talking about learning. The first one was learn new things. Like it's super important to just continually yep. be feeding yourself with information and, and learning as you go, because you're, it's constantly changing and you're never going to like have the right answer at any moment in time. Um, the other one was, I kind of hinted at this in terms of the way people operate in Ethereum, but it's sort of like, like leverage the leverage that you have. And I don't mean that like in a bad way, but you have strengths, you have things that you're right. good at, um, really lean into those and figure out how that can help, you know, sort of influence your path. And then the other, the other one was, uh, that success is not linear. So, uh, don't think, you know, what the endpoint is, uh, that you're seeking for and draw a straight line and try to get there. Uh, it's, it's all full of branches and possibilities and you should explore all of those and you will end up taking a, a, an entirely different path uh, than you first envisioned for your life. But you will find the most successful one if you if you look at all the different you know branches on each node, you know, along the way. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll keep mine short because um, I can't remember exactly the format that I received this advice in, but uh you know, a piece of entrepreneurial advice that I got at some point was like, when you're faced with a hard decision, uh, framing the decision as like, which option you will regret less, rather than maybe the option that makes the most sense, um, can be an interesting guiding heuristic. And it, at least for me personally, has pushed me to, to do a lot of things that were uh, really exciting and interesting, uh, but seemed like maybe a questionable decision at the time. Um, but I did them because I knew I'd regret it if I didn't try. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Ah, I love that, Jake. Yeah, I would say that the more eye rolls you get, if you're still, if you, if you get to a point where you're relishing in the eye rolls and you're still relishing in them three or four years later, no matter how much people think you're crazy and no matter how much, uh, you know, the world maybe doesn't understand you, you need, you need, to not give up and you need to push through. But, you know, uh, my, my poor dear wife would attest to the fact that uh, some people come up with a lot of ideas all the time and almost on a daily basis. And um, the way you determine which ones are the ones that you push for those eye rolls, because otherwise it gets real old real quick, uh, are, there's something that happens that, like, you know, it just kind of uh, has this this feeling in your body that's like, okay, this is, this is right. And this is something that's worth fighting for. Um, and, uh, and follow your heart, you know, don't give up and, 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 and be crazy and be weird. Cause if it's, if it's not, if it's already out there, it's, it's not going to be too weird. Well, that was great advice. Really everybody, uh, there was a lot of great advice and uh, great information throughout the, uh, the podcast. We'll be dividing this into two episodes. So it's, uh, it's great. I know I personally <laughs> learned a lot. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, Jake, Eric, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us. us. Yeah, super pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. (laughs) 